1: This podcast is some of our favourite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co anchor with Romain Bostick, Taylor Riggs, and Joe Weisenthal. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we got an outlook from Nick Maruzos, head of global bonds at Janice Henderson, ahead of the Federal Reserve's rate decision. Nick told us why investors are being forced to take risks in investment grade credit and why he thinks the Fed is the only game in town. Investors are looking past grim economic data and driving up bond prices with the Fed there to backstop it. We started by asking Nick, "What if we can go even lower in terms of where sovereign debt yields are currently trading in the U.S.?"
2: I don't see why not. I mean, the Fed is likely going to give some sort of forward guidance where they want to keep rates in check. It's not beneficial for rates to be rising in this sort of environment, particularly as we're mired and trying to navigate through a crisis. So there's only really one direction that they can go the question is is how much value do they offer you look at treasuries front end treasuries yielding a measly you know 10 15 basis points you move out to the 10 year and you're yielding 58 basis points there's not that much bang for your buck so i think your investors are being forced to take risk other other places that includes the investment grade credit market where we've seen a huge appreciation in credit in credit spreads and credit just in general, particularly because of the implicit Fed backing that the the Fed has provided through their primary and secondary corporate credit facilities.
3: So Nick, I mean, with regards to the potential for going negative, or at least getting down to that waterline, I'm talking on an official benchmark basis, Does the Fed even need to really do that at this stage with some of its, uh, I guess, the uh, levers that it has to pull with regards to QE, as well as just the general market response that seems to suggest we're pretty much already at negative rates, uh, at least on an effective basis. Does the Fed really need to make it official in any sort of form?
2: You know, Romain, that's a very good point. You know, the question arises about yield yield curve control. We're kind of already there. You look at the move index, which tracks bond volatility, and that's at an all-time low. You know, a three basis point move in treasuries today is considered a large move, considering what we've had over the past few weeks and the past couple months. Does the move to negative really achieve much? I don't think so. I think, fortunately, the Fed's in a much better position, the U.S. economy's in a much better position than, let's say, something like Europe or other areas of Japan that have had more negative yields for a significant amount of time. Whereas they have the ability to increase the level of QE, they can do these unconventional monetary policy programs, again, introduce fiscal stimulus that ultimately hope to get to the bottom line and keep the economy, or at least bridge the gap as the economy tries to power through this coronavirus crisis.
4: Nick, I'm curious, at 50 basis points or so on the 10-year, what do you do? Is it all unrealistic because it's just the Fed pumping in liquidity or is this actually really attached to fundamentals because the economy isn't rebounding as quick as we think and it might be weaker than we all think?
2: Sure. You know, look. the funny thing is, is that the Fed is really the only game in town at the moment. No one's really looking at the data. No one's necessarily talking about the election just yet. You know, we're all in an environment where not that many people are back in their offices. People are working from home. Uh, Businesses are shuttering. Hey, there's a there's a significant problem that, that the world is facing, and yet the market's kind of just shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, the Fed's going to be there to backstop it. You know, the funny thing about yields in general is that bond investors typically don't buy bonds for the yield. They buy bonds for the capital appreciation. So if people believe that yields are going to appreciate, mm. you can make more money than the yield actually dictates. You know, if you look at treasuries at 58 basis points, they rally to 50 basis points, you're looking at, you know, 80 basis points in return, questionably more, which is why people are looking to move out the curve to longer-dated assets or moving into other asset classes like high-grade credit, high-yield high assets where they can get a higher yield and potentially higher capital appreciation because the Fed is implicitly backstopping these assets. You could say the same thing for risk assets in terms of equities, right? We're sort of of the impression that you have an environment, at least over the rest of the year where all asset classes continue to do well. They may not print the returns that we've seen over the last few months, but certainly you're going to see asset classes move higher, particularly because of that Fed backing.
1: Where then, Nick, to gain the edge? If you continue to see, well, across the board, asset classes doing pretty well, not as well as they've done, where can you get ahead? Is it by dabbling in the high yield area?
2: And this is where the risk lies. You know, at the end of the day, we're bond investors and we're hired to manage defensive portfolios that achieve a stable, consistent income level. It's very difficult at these at these prices. We are used to be buying corporate bonds at a discount and getting that pull to par, getting some coupon income, some capital appreciation. We're now we're buying assets with a 105 handle, a 110 handle. That capital appreciation or the prospect for the capital appreciation really isn't there. We're having to look into other areas. Can we get carry from other countries like Canada, New Zealand, Australia? These are countries with positive yield curves that maybe have a little bit more juice in them um, to, to achieve some capital appreciation. We're very focused on the front end of the yield curves because we think globally the bar for central banks to be raising interest rates is extremely low. So if you can just capture that roll down. Over the course of the next year or so, right. you know, at least you can get some sort of returns. But don't count on big returns in the fixed income market. It's just not going to happen.
3: Nick, I am curious about uh, the duration side of this. Then, I mean, I-, I can understand the play on the short end of the curve, but we've seen a lot of folks now starting to move a little bit further out in duration. I guess what are you seeing that makes you stay a little bit more pinned towards the short end versus moving further out to the long end?
2: For us it becomes what's the best information ratio on the trades that we're trying to achieve right so the front end like i said the bar for the fed to be hiking interest rates is is out of reach it's completely out of reach the likelihood of them hiking rates is virtually zero if you look back to the crisis of 2008 the fed was on hold for seven years what we've been on hold the the feds now moved to zero three months ago four months ago Again, this is going to be a long drawn out situation, so capture that roll down in the belly of the curve because you're less focused on the risk if if yields were to move higher due to some inflationary pressures, assuming that would come about. Again, focus on that front end. It, It becomes a lot more defensive. Again, you're not gonna get the big returns, but you're going to get some return at least.
4: Nick, from duration down to the credit scale, I'm curious if an investment grade corporate ag index at 130 basis points over treasuries or high yield at 500 basis points over treasuries, what provides you a better risk return valuation?
2: Well, if you look at the Fed programs, our view would be that the credit provides the high grade credit provides the best risk return optics. Why the feds not in the business of losing money and these primary and secondary corporate credit facilities, while they haven't been fully implemented, they're at least there. The fed has $750 billion worth of purchasing power in the credit markets. And a lot of people say, well, that's not necessarily hitting main street. The fed can influence influence markets. The question is, can they influence the economy because big corporations can issue bonds and actually get cheap funding, but smaller corporations aren't, aren't allowed to or can't, can't actually access that. So again, there's the divide between what's happening in the market versus what's happening in the real economy. But if you look at specifically high yield versus high grade, our view is that high grade is, in, is significantly safer purely because of that Fed backstop.
1: So as we focus in on the market rather than the economy for tomorrow, Nick, what's the one thing you're going to look out for from the Fed?
2: Just, just a general change in tone, which we don't think will happen. Um, the, the Fed has been you know, very quite clear in their messaging over the last few months. You know, there's some indications that they could give some support and guidance on inflation, whether it's, it's a multi-year look back on inflation, which essentially moves the gold post a little bit gives them some breathing room and allows them to potentially introduce more stimulus down the track. But again, we're not huge believers that the inflation train is moving ahead. We quite think it's the opposite and you're getting more deflationary pressures, particularly as you have more issuance. But you know, as, as long as Powell sort of sticks to the script um, and continues the fact that he's going to be there to back the markets, I think it should really be a non-event.
1: We also dove into this week's FX action with Win Thin, global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. That's as the dollar closed in on its sixth week of losses. We started by asking Win, "Well, if investors can start assuming dollar weakness from here on out?"
5: Um, near term, absolutely. Um, the stars are aligned against the dollar right now. Um, what really started the ball rolling was the Fed's aggressive easing and balance sheet, balance sheet expansion, uh, starting back in March and April. Um, and that we saw a similar dynamic play out back in 2008, 2009, when the Fed was the most, uh, the earliest and most aggressive with its QE back then. But uh, you know what's I think adding to this downdraft now is the fact that it looks like the virus numbers are really going to impact uh, growth in the second half. Um, you know everyone's been pricing in a, a big second half rally in, in the global economy. We're getting that from some countries, particularly uh, Europe, in Europe and China, but U.S. is a missing piece. Uh, you know it's a big headwind on the U.S. Uh, economy, and that, I think that will hold back uh, the dollar. You know, there's expectations of further Fed easing, uh, lack of uh, fiscal stimulus, all these things are really, again, all the stars are lined against the dollar right now.
3: Yeah, so I mean, when I guess when you look at the growth expectations, you look at uh, yield expectations, particularly relative to the rest of the world, it does make a compelling case to go short the dollar. I think back to 2018 a little bit, though, when we also had that downturn in the dollar, that only really lasted for a few months, and those trades got unwound pretty fast. And I'm wondering that given how fast the shift has been to go short dollar, could we see an unwind of that trade should you know, Powell say the magic words on Wednesday?
5: Well, for sure, we'll be seeing some heightened volatility going forward. There's just so many cross currents and so much uncertainty going on. But really, at this point, um, it's very rare But the European economies are likely to outperform the U.S. That's, that's something that we haven't seen in maybe a couple of handful of years over the last several decades. And it's just, again, going back to the virus. Uh, many states reopen too soon. Um, it's The numbers are still going up. Until we get the virus under control, it's hard to imagine how the US can really kind of catch up. Now, longer term, you know, I'm not one of these guys that are, they're out there calling for long-term secular decline of the dollar. I think it's, it's way too early to say that. Um, but I will say that we can, I'm pretty confident we'll have another quarter or two of, of dollar weakness until we get these virus numbers down. Eventually, the US can catch up. Again, the Fed's been the most aggressive has really planted the seeds for, for a good recovery in the U.S., but what's missing is the, is the is suppressing the virus. We haven't done that successfully, and that's going to hold us back.
1: When I'm interested, though, at what times dollar decides it's going to be the haven of choice and what times dollar decides it's going to be under pressure when we're feeling risk-averse at the same time. Like Today, we're, we're worried about coronavirus, but it seems that we're more hopeful of the Federal Reserve. What could flip us to once again being panicked and wanting to buy the dollar instead of sell it?
5: Well, that's the problem, is that, you know, the, a lot of the bad news is coming from the U.S., so it's hard to, to justify going into the U.S. as a haven mm-hmm. when, when we're causing a lot of bad news. So I will note that the last several bouts of risk-off um, trading that we've seen really hasn't benefited the dollar. It's more benefited the yen, Swiss franc, and, and lately the gold. So I would posit that it's possible that, that for now these, those havens uh, will be the, the sort of the, the ones of choice. Now, you know, as you know, these, these relationships have changed. It, you know, the correlations change. These relationships change, but for now, uh, I don't think the dollar is going to benefit much from, from the safe haven. You know, the, dollar, the, the Fed has just fl- has flooded the world with dollars. Uh, you know, there's ample supply, ample liquidity, and that, that's really just a, a, a recipe for currency weakness.
4: You know, you mentioned gold, and any time you say gold in the last two weeks, all of our ears perk up. So I'm going to take the bait. You talk about gold. You talk about correlations, a hedge against higher inflation. How much of gold is a hedge against weaker dollar, lower rates, and coming inflation eventually if we ever get it?
5: Yeah, I, I would downplay the inflation uh, hedge. Just because Like you said, we're just not there yet. We haven't seen any really inflationary impulses. I think it, it, the, the gold plays more just a, a sort of, again, safe haven, a lot of uncertainty out there, and uh, the gold tends to do well when the dollar is weakening. So it's more of those factors. And you know, if you look at the break-evens on, on the U.S. Uh, tips, they're about back to where they were in, in March. So, but we're not, we're not seeing runaway inflation being priced in. So uh, the other thing I'd also note is it's pretty much costless to, to be long gold right now. You know, it used to be you have an opportunity cost. You, you know, you're giving up yield on a treasury or what have you to, to hold gold. But with zero and even negative rates, you're you're almost being paid the whole gold. And it's, it's, uh, you know, I think that's, that's part of the allure right now.
3: Yeah, a lot of allure there. Uh, Caroline's still in digital gold, and <laughs> I think uh, Taylor's been investing in podcasts. Uh, Wynn, <laughs> I, I want to get your thoughts here uh, on this uh, stimulus package that uh, we're actually awaiting to get some word uh, later this hour, potentially, on whether this bill that the Republicans are working on uh, does advance. Uh, the basic details that we know so far is that it's basically going to be an extension of some of the benefits that are already out there, but not necessarily to the fullest. Do you think that this round of stimulus that we get, if, assuming it gets done, do you think that's going to be enough to sort of be that bridge uh, between wherever we are now in the stage of this COVID crisis to uh, the other side uh, of this economic abyss? Uh, is that going to be enough, or do we need to see a little bit more on the fiscal front in order to get us through this?
5: No, Romain, that's, that's a great question. You know, if you would ask me a month ago when the virus numbers were going down, I might posit an a, a, a optimistic maybe. But given how badly we've, we've bungled this, uh, this crisis here, it looks like it's gonna stretch on and on. I think we need much more. You know, we're going from $600 a week down to perhaps 200, 300, that's, you know, half. That's a lot of uh, sort of disposable income that's, that's basically being cut. There's still you know, tens of millions of people out of, out of a job. Uh, so my, my, my gut feeling is that there's more needs to be done. Now, the, the politics comes into, it, into play, obviously. They, they go on recess, Congress goes on recess in August. Then the, the election uh, comes up in November. So this may be the last package we see before the election. And, and, and in which case, I hope they go big. Because yeah. you know if they're, if they're really being timid, that I think we're really looking for, for some more serious headwinds, more serious than we, we, we can expect now uh, in the second half of the year.
1: When I'm interested in the... Adage goes that dollar goes down, emerging markets benefit. I'm looking at how much the Brazilian Real, for example, is up on the day, the leader of the pack when it comes to emerging markets on WCRS and the Bloomberg. And that's a country that's also not been handling COVID well. And I'm interested, therefore, as to whether the dollar weakness will always be emerging markets gain or whether there is still some pause for thought when you think of the COVID continuing to unravel. Yeah, so
5: we're in a broad-based dollar sell-off, and that's against both the majors and emerging markets. But... You know, you, do, you go to your wonderful WCRS page, right, and you look at the year date and you'll see there's still a lot of differentiation. Um, you know, Brazilian real you mentioned one of the, it, it happens to be one of the worst-performing. I think uh, Turkish lira, South African RAND, mm-hmm. they're up there. So there is still differentiation. Uh, it's positive at the margin for all emerging markets, but uh, as you know, some emerging markets are, are, are you know, better than others. And so you, I, I do think, especially as this rally goes on and on, I, I would think that investors would get even more sort of discerning and not just go through this sort of high-liquidity – um, you know, big plays, you know, it's, you have to be very, very careful going forward. Um, you know, the US is a big part of the, of the global growth story. So, you know, yes, you know, yeah. we're, we're underperforming, but the, the world needs the US growing at, at, at close to potential to sort of get out of this whole global route. You know, I, I don't think Europe and China alone are quite enough to do it. We need the US firing on all cylinders too. So I'm just crossing my fingers uh, that we can get these numbers down in, uh, in the second half.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When the U.S. economy weakens, black Americans are the first to feel the pain. And when the economy rebounds, well, they're the last to see the benefits. Economists are using that data to push the Fed to factor in race when it makes policy decisions. Presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden weighed in on expanding the central bank's dual mandate this week during an economic speech, saying he is going to strengthen the Federal Reserve's focus on racial economic equity and that he believes, quote, the Fed should add to that responsibility and aggressively target persistent racial gaps in jobs, wages and wealth. But Fed Chair Jay Powell says fiscal, education, and healthcare policies can do more on that front. We spoke about the issue with Mirsa Baradaran, associate dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of California, Irvine Law School. Mirsa is also the author of the book *The Color of Money*. We started by asking her just how much impact the Federal Reserve could have on income inequality here in the U.S.
0: Um, so I think I want to start with the premise. I mean, I think some people tend to think that monetary policy does not have distributional effects or at at, at, both, at best it's sort of a side effect of, you know, they're just putting in liquidity into markets. And so the, 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 the first, uh, you know, sort of a, that assumption is, is faulty, right? So all of the monetary um, policy um, that the Fed has been engaged in over the last 10 years and over the last you know, 30 realistically does have distributional effects. So when you choose the, the the types of markets that you're going to infuse with liquidity, that's going to have effects down the line. And specifically, it has um, contributed to uh, racial inequality. Now, the Fed didn't it- create racial inequality. It was a pre-existing condition, but it has exacerbated it. And so for the Fed to take account of racial inequality isn't, you know, to say that, oh, this is a new thing they should do. It's just that they should measure how Mm. their policies have actually
1: exacerbated uh, these, these conditions. How could they go about to unwind that exacerbation?
0: You know, it's, it's the, the choices that they make in how they infuse liquidity into markets. so for example you know instead of buying up commercial paper or repo uh, in, in their asset purchases they could buy up municipal bonds from cities that are under really you know uh, unusual and exit uh, circumstances like um, Detroit Baltimore some of these cities that have undergone bankruptcy because of these historic you know redlining and and the, the coronavirus and the, the subprime crisis um, why not you know, buy up those municipal bonds and allow those cities to have the liquidity that otherwise other markets would get. So that's one one way. But I think sometimes just measuring the effects does goes yeah. a, a long way. Um, so those metrics could really help.
4: Those are some significant structural changes, though, and some would say that you'd have to go back uh, to the early 1900s and change the Federal Reserve Act in order to do that. Is that where we need to begin, or are there some other structural issues you can look at before starting to place some blame on the Fed? Uh, You definitely don't have to change the act. It's all interpretation. I mean, 13.3 of the um,
0: 1913 Federal Reserve Act is, you know, unusual in circumstances. Those are the emergency lending provisions. I mean, to see the Let's say, creative legal uh, maneuvers that the Fed did uh, in 2008 to use 13-3 authority to infuse, uh, you know, capital and liquidity into markets was not in any way, sort of, you know, so faithful to the law. Where this would not be, um, the the 1913 Federal Reserve Act was always meant to, uh, you know, be be a broad uh, you know, way for the Fed to. Uh, to help communities as well as banks. Now, I'm not saying it it foresaw this sort of action, but it certainly didn't foresee the ways that the Fed has uh, used its authority over the past,
3: you know, two decades. So, Mezra, the last time we had you on, we were talking a lot about sort of the ways that uh, you can close this incoming inequality gap, not just from the Fed's perspective, but as to what other measures that the government could take, Congress can take, uh, what municipalities could take, as you just mentioned. One of those proposals, of course, is uh, from Cory Booker of New Jersey, the senator out there, who talked about these baby bonds, this idea of effectively setting up a trust uh, for, every, uh, for every kid born and using that as a way to sort of help close uh, the wealth gap. What do you make of that? particular proposal do you think it could work
0: i think baby bonds is a great idea i've i've also proposed you know a homestead act uh, that you know, some some uh, legislators have used. There are other um, proposals on the table that would do this. But, you know, fiscal policy is obviously the better, more democratic way to get this done. And I think parts of the calls for the Fed to do this through monetary policy is a reflection of how broken our um, fiscal policy levers are. It does seem like we can easily get things done with the Fed that we can't do through Congress. That is not the best indication of where our democracy is. But absolutely, I think, if Congress or you know Senate could get something like baby bonds or um, a broad-scale sort of uh, program that would focus on these things, that's better, uh, both for the democracy and for the communities.
1: This week, four of the most powerful tech CEOs were in the hot seat on Capitol Hill, fending off accusations of stifling competition. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Sundar Pichai of Google, and Tim Cook of Apple all faced questions from lawmakers as the House's antitrust subcommittee caps its year-long investigation of market dominance in the industry. The companies were pressed on specific issues – Google on search, Facebook on its acquisition of Instagram, Apple for its app store rules, and Amazon for its treatment of third-party sellers. The CEOs also faced allegations of anti-conservative bias. We spoke after the hearing with Dina Srinivasan, fellow at Yale's Thurman Arnold Project. She's also the author of the paper The Antitrust Case Against Facebook and Why Google Dominates Advertising Markets, which actually got brought up at the hearing by Congresswoman Jayapal in her questions to Sundar Pichai. The market reaction to the hearings might seem to say that investors thought the executives walked away from Capitol Hill relatively unscathed. We asked Dina if
6: she agreed with that assessment. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, you know, I think that these uh, hearings are very early stages, and they help raise issues. So, I guess, I guess, I'd say it doesn't surprise me much.
1: Doesn't surprise you much? I'm interested by what you think the next steps could be. This has been a very thorough investigation, and in many ways, one of the most uh, concerning for the CEOs overall in terms of the steps that could be taking. What, what do you see? Is it more a question that the current antitrust law as it stands just needs to be enforced more from your perspective, or does it need to be reworked?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think the initial steps, the initial things that are gonna increasingly come into focus are, A, just enforcement of current antitrust laws, which which is why, you know, competition authorities across the world have started their investigations. And then I think the other thing that might come into focus more and more as time moves forward here um, before we even dive into any conversation about change, changing antitrust laws, it's just the possible need for legislation or regulation in some of these markets.
3: Yeah. So, Dina, I mean, yeah, I mean, before we talk about changing the antitrust laws, if you take the current antitrust laws, you take the current legislation out there with regards to competition. Two of the names that we have on our screen there, Facebook and Alphabet, pretty much control the digital ad market ad hoc. And I'm just curious as to why you cannot make a compelling case right now legally within the current legal framework that those two companies have a monopoly in the ad space.
6: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think that you can. I, I think that you can. And what you know, the, the thing that I've researched and written about more recently, which I which I think is really fascinating, is a lot of the. Th- if you look at a lot of the things that com- people are complaining about in terms of Facebook or Google's behavior in advertising markets, you see online ads are bought and sold in electronic marketplaces, which the industry calls advertising exchanges. And in fact, buyers and sellers also have to go through an intermediary to buy and sell on these exchanges. And if we look at sort of the laundry list of what people are complaining about, a lot of it looks really similar to stuff we make, we prohibit in other electronic trading markets, like on stock exchanges or, you know, through stockbrokers. And so um, this lens provides a framework for understanding what the complaints are, but why also legislation might might increasingly come into focus?
4: Dina, one of the arguments that has been made, particularly from Mr. Zuckerberg, is that if you break up big tech, we can't compete with China because they're all backed by the China Communist Party. Is that valid, or do you not buy it? I I, I totally I totally don't buy it. I think it's
6: a I think it's a strategic argument. But at the end of the day. If we're interested in having the free market sort of make sure that the best ideas and the best products and services win, you need to have competition. And so it's very important from a market structure perspective to just make sure that competition is possible.
1: Talk to us about that competition and how you see it at the moment, Dina, because we've seen, well, leveled by CEO Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook yesterday, that he almost went a bit off script, started saying how powerful some of the other CEOs sat around him were, how Apple controls messaging to a certain extent, how Amazon is making a foothold in advertising, but Google certainly doesn't. has the, one of the most used apps, whether it be YouTube. And also, they've tried to say again and again, look, there's Snapchat and there's TikTok out there. How do you see the competitive landscape?
6: Yeah, I, I think these comments are entertaining because I almost feel like in Silicon Valley it's a bit of a a game of uh, a game of thrones type of competition you know but but uh from the antitrust lens the question of competition and whether a company is a monopoly is much more methodical and focused you know the question is okay a lot of people use facebook do they use other products um in substitute for facebook which means it do they close their facebook account and then open a snap account and use those two products interchangeably If the answer to that question is yes, then they're in the same product market and it makes Facebook look smaller. The problem that I think that 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 type of argument has is, you know, I have Facebook, but I also, um, you know, use a messaging app or maybe my children have a Facebook account and they also use TikTok. And so those products are not really interchangeable, which is a problem under antitrust law.
3: Dana, what about the idea here of market entry with regards to newer competitors here? There's been a lot of concerns specifically when it comes to uh, Google and some of its products as well as, uh, as, well as uh, uh, Amazon and the way that it sort of controls certain marketplaces that, uh, that any sort of organic competition really can't just sort of pop up uh, and thrive. Does that not sort of reach any sort of legal threshold that would give you a concern?
6: Um, it depends, you know, we'd have to, we had, we'd have to get a little bit more specific because Google owns so many different products. One thing that I think is really interesting right now is how, um, this common thread, uh, that, that we see right now in conversations in terms of being concerned about how these platforms self-preference themselves, it may not rise to a concern under antitrust law. Sometimes it does. But I think, again, the question here is from a broader policy perspective, do we want, you know, do we want something else? Do we want to make sure basically that um, Google's search returns uh, uh, results that are best for consumers? Do we care about self-preferencing? Do we care that Amazon surfaces its own Amazon brand batteries at the top of the search results? Yeah. That kind of thing.
1: That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5pm on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5pm streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.